0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. After my conversation with uh, today's guest, I really started thinking a lot about the beginning of Cadence, you know, how I started the company. And really, that story goes even a few years earlier while I was working at another company. I was at this firm, this coaching firm, and I'd left being a therapist to come work at that firm. The people running the place had this kind of like assumed expertise of like, this is how it's done. And there was a lot of conversation about being a business person, being a business person. But after a while, you just kind of realized they were winging it just as much as anyone else. And it was kind of like the Wizard of Oz. At the end of the day, it's just like, it's just some dude behind a curtain turning a crank. This idea of expertise or like, you know, like, Somebody has like the master plan. You know what? More often than not, that's not real. And it's just people speaking from a place of expertise. And that might not be them just faking it. Yeah, there might be some best practices. They might know some stuff. They might have some insights. But at the same time, a creative mind, someone willing to take some risks, someone willing to see beyond the next horizon, around the next corner, to take the leap. Those people can often do it without all the people guiding them along the way. Our guest today is an incredible example of that. Brian Flynn is the founder and owner of Hybrid Design and Super 7, based in San Francisco. Super 7 was supposed to be Brian's pet side project, but it's become something much more than simply a hobby. Super 7 began in 2001, as a magazine focused on his obsessive collecting of vintage Japanese toys. Now, all these years later, Super 7 has evolved into a thriving retail brand, That's still an extension of his original passion. As the company manifesto says, no one made what we wanted, so we made it ourselves. This discussion for me, A, like just really filled up my cup from like, damn, so inspirational, but also it's just like really confirming, like follow your vision. Buckle up because this is a great discussion. Before we get into it, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics, and if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. So let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. everyone welcome back to the show Uh, like I mentioned in our intro today's guest is someone I'm personally inspired by I think that what he has done on the surface seems like oh you know it's kind of a neat idea but really it's actually like a really cool cultural thing and it has the power of like if you're just into something like you really love something you can turn it into what you do if you're smart about it with that I want to welcome Brian Flynn to the show
1: thanks for having me how are you doing?
0: I'm good, man. I have been waiting for this interview because I've followed Super 7 for so long. Uh, my friend Alex, of course, used to work uh, work there, and I'm just such a big fan of what you do. So for the people, the uninitiated, the people who don't know about it, can you tell us a bit about Super 7 and then how you started it to, to get to where you are today?
1: All right. Let's see if I can do it in short versions because I'm not good at short versions. Uh- <clears throat> So Super 7 has now been around for 20 years, and it started out as my hobby. So I was a professional designer, graphic designer. I worked at Fossil Watches, then I worked at Nike. And then when I left Nike in 2000, I moved to San Francisco, completely unaware that San Francisco was connected to Silicon Valley because I was from Texas, so I figured Silicon Valley was a place with sand. Uh, I didn't realize it was San Francisco. I just wanted to live in San Francisco. I opened my own design studio and was lucky enough to retain Nike as a client. But starting out the design studio, I didn't exactly have all of my hours accounted for. So in the evenings, then I started a what would have been a punk rock fanzine in the old days about collecting Japanese toys, because that was one of the things I was super into. And I was always sort of annoyed that there was no information anywhere out there about it. The difference between making it on a photocopier and what I was able to do there was the advent of digital photography. So I could take six by five uh, images at 300 DPI and I could do all the digital back end pre-press. So I could make it look more like a real magazine, but it was straight up supposed to just be a punk rock fanzine. I think it was five thousand dollars to do the initial print run, and the goal was to sell ten ads for two hundred and fifty bucks and sell five hundred copies at five bucks. And then we'd break even and we'd get the magazine for free. You know it was the same business model that every record label any one of us ever knew was based off of, which is even if it only costs us fifty or hundred bucks, we get the record for free. That was the whole way it was set up. And, I never really expected it to, to do much beyond that simply because, you know, we're talking about a very niche sort of subject. Very quickly, I found out that there were more people that were interested in this topic than I was. And so without belaboring the point, it started off as a magazine. We started using that to do recolors of Toys in Japan that we would offer through the magazine. Then two years later, we opened up our first store, which was like the toy store that I wanted to go to, which was an extension of the magazine. We started making T-shirts. We started making more toys in Japan. We started designing our own toys. Then we started making our own characters. Then we started manufacturing it ourselves. And that over the last 20 years has snowballed into everything that we do today. Rather large toy company that that's how people know us, but I don't really think that we're limited to that. I feel like we just like to make cool shit. It just happens to be a lot of toys in that mix
0: yeah at what point after how long did it become your sole source of income
1: uh 16 years Sixteen. so years. for the first 16 years i didn't uh work here per se i worked on it on night and weekends and there were other people there were people like you mentioned alex that worked at the store that it supported them and it was able to do them full-time but it was not able to pay me if you will that that's not even the right answer i because I didn't even pay, take a paycheck. It wasn't until like year 16 that I was like, I think if I spend a year, I can actually turn the business over enough that I can actually start to work here. So it it took another, I think, two years before I actually got paid. It became my full-time job after 14 years. Mm. I, I stepped all over that, but you know.
0: Well, like, I'm interested. Was it something you were pushing? Like, yeah, I want it to get to that. Or was you, were you just being pulled that way? Like it just kind of kept growing and becoming, getting more and more interest. So did you say, hey, I want it to become my living and you pushed it that way? Or were you just kind of pulled along with it?
1: Um, I There's a little bit of both, but I would say more pulling at that time. I mean, the reality is I started the design studio here, hybrid design. That's my design studio with my wife. So that was my full-time job. That was what I wanted to do. Like, if I had to have a job, I didn't want to go work for somebody else anymore. I wanted to own my own design studio. I wanted to do the work I wanted to do. And we were always very, very cognizant of the trap that so many ad agencies fall into, which is it's easy to take advertising work or other work that pays really good for not a lot of creative interest. And I was like, I can always go do the shitty job at some point else. So we were just always very focused on keeping it small and tight so that we were doing the work that we wanted to do. And I was very, very clear with that from the beginning, which is like, I can go be miserable working for anybody, but if I'm working for myself, there's no reason to be miserable. Like if that means I'm going to fire this client and I'm only going to, I'm not going to make as much money this year, I'd rather do that and be in charge of my life. Cause if the whole thing goes to hell and goes down in flames. I can always go get a job working for somebody else. So we always kept, I mean, hybrid very small. So Super 7 by proxy was even smaller than hybrid because it was always like, it's, it's a hobby thing. And yeah, it's working and it's getting bigger, but it would have to get a lot bigger before it could really sort of be a thing that I was focused on versus the design studio. And just over time, it kept building and building. And it was just this slow one plus one equals two, two plus two equals four, but then that doesn't quite work out. So now you're at three. So three plus three equals six, but now you're at five. So five plus five equals, and it was just this very slow methodical build. And it really wasn't until we came out with the reaction figures for alien that, we thought that there might be something bigger because the stuff we were making before almost was too niche, if that makes any sense. When we started making the reaction figure, and now maybe I'm really far gone on a tangent, when we went out with that product in 2014, we went to San Diego Comic-Con thinking, we're going to do an action figure that's low likeness, low articulation, low paint application, And a high price point at $20 each when the market was $7 for hyper articulation, a million pad prints. So we didn't think that we were going out there with a recipe for success. We just wanted to make this obscure thing that we really wanted. And what we didn't really realize is that when we got there, that every other person that was buying toys that is my age, that was collecting it, wanted that nostalgia and wanted that and... We went down there beforehand with a run of unpainted alien figures, hoping that we would sell through two thirds of them at San Diego. And then maybe then we could sell the rest online. And instead they were gone preview night. They didn't even last an hour. So that was the first time that we took, we had something that all of a sudden we realized there was a much larger audience than sort of, you know, the crowd that came to our shows already That was the first time you're like, oh, wait, there's something more here. But it still took another two years before it really got to the point where I was like, okay, I think this might actually be real, real.
0: All right. So how did you not blow it? And I'm going to parallel it to punk here. You know, think of like all the great punk bands or hardcore bands that we know that put out a record that was awesome. And everyone was like, I'm into that band. But then they panic froze, whatever it was, maybe pushed out the next record too quick. Maybe it got to their heads. And then everything they did after that totally sucked. So how did you not blow it after you had that that experience?
1: The funny part about the thing is that we've talked about this before. Like with other people I knew that were not so much into the punk scene, but were more musician oriented, and they were like, "The thing is, is that first record they spent 16 years writing that record. Mm. That and that' why it came out when they were 16 and it was so great. The next record they spent nine months writing. That's why the next record sucks." Yeah. There's some validity to that. I think within the punk and hardcore community, what you've always seen is that first record is just all energy and excitement and it's amazing. And then they start to think they can actually play. And then you've (laughs) got to go, then you've got to go through three or four albums worth of them, like going like, look what I can do. Look what I can do before they forget to play again. And they just go back to just like, Oh yeah, just like, just bang on this thing. And then you're like, Oh, now you're good again. So there's that. So I think for us, Part of the reason, if you will, say we didn't blow it, it it was never a thing that we thought was going to be a thing. It was never really, I guess, say in the cards. And I, I just keep coming back to the same thing across everything. There's over 50 people that work here at Super 7 now. And when they start, I tell them this sort of same thing is like, nobody else owns us. We don't have to do anything we don't want to do. So let's figure out what we want to make. And what we've found time and time again is if we stop and really focus on what we want, there's another person out there that wants that same thing. Like, let's not cut the corners. Let's not go that. Let's not go. Like, because we've had a couple of products over the year where you're like, This item sells and this item sells. So we should put these two things together. And then it flops. And it's like, well, now we're guessing. We made something that we assumed other people would want rather than just making the shit we wanted. So let's just make this shit we want and just focus on that. And that's been what worked. And so there's part of me that's like, someday this is not going to work anymore. And whenever that happens, we had a hell of a run. But right now... I'm just going to keep going, keep making the stuff I wanted to do. But at the same time, I'm also then talking to people that work for me going, if everything waits for me, we're going to run out of stuff to make and we're going to run out of ideas. So people that have been here a little while that I trust, I'm like, what do you want to make? Well, let's go make that. What do you want to make? Let's go make that. Because that's how now the voice is getting wider and wider but it's really focused on, don't tell me what you think you want. Don't tell me what the buyer at some chain store wants. Don't tell me what your friend wants. What do you want to make? Well, I don't know if that's going to be big or small. That that's impa- That doesn't matter. Let's just make the stuff we want to make. So Maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. But if we go down and flame the thing, it's sort of like records or zines. If you press 500 records and you can only sell 250 of them, and there's 250 of them sitting in your basement and it was a record that you pressed because you thought they were going to be popular, you hate that record and you resent those 250 copies. Mm-hmm. But if it's a record that you loved and just nobody got into, you're like, it's a shame that nobody likes them, but I'm so happy that I put this out. I wish people would just buy this record. And that's the mindset that you have to have. It's like, just make it the way you want it. Don't don't guess what other people want because then you're guessing. You're not you're not acting in it's not authentic it's not true
0: yeah I love that my best friend when I first started my first record label he gave me the best piece of advice because he he ran a record label that had like records that did really well and records that totally flopped and I was like you know young I was nervous and I said like god I don't know if I should do it what do you think and he said do you love this record to own a thousand copies and I said yeah, I, I think I'd, I think I do love this record enough to own a thousand copies. He's like, then put it out. If you don't love a record enough to own every single copy that you press because nobody bought it and nobody cared, then you should never put out a punk record. Right. And it's it's what I've lived by. And it's an interesting thing, though, because when you get some wins in your sales, it's really easy to be, make bad decisions. Do you know Chris Wren from Bridge Nine? Yeah, yeah. Chris one time said something. We were talking about just like record label stuff. And he was talking about how he tried to avoid making Bridge Nine his living. And he's like, as soon as something, as soon as your passion becomes your living, you're forced to make decisions based on what's going to sell versus what's going to satisfy you creatively. That's why he's always tried to focus more on Sully's. You seem to hit this like kind of beautiful middle ground. And I know it took a long time to build you to that place. But man, 50 employees, you know, you're making a living uh, at it yourself. How were you able to consistently make decisions that fulfill that creative side of you?
1: It's been an interesting thing because, like I said, I don't think that I would have predicted that it would have continued to work the way it's doing because of that very reason. But to a degree, within this genre, if you will, of making collector product that's mostly focused around toys, there's not really any other companies that are doing that they're all driven by, well, you got to go get the Marvel license. You got to go get the DC license. Like how big can you go? It's like a perfect example is like, you know, we're doing bigger licenses. We did, we got Walt Disney. So we just finished Disney wave one of Ultimates a while back and I'm not making Mickey mouse. I'm not making Minnie mouse. I'm not making the stuff that that's going to pay bills. I was like, I want Prince John from Robin hood. Cause as a kid, when uh, I would go to this sort of on-base daycare in Bitburg, Air Force Base, one of the places I grew up on, they would play the soccer match from Robin Hood on 8 millimeter on the screen. And I watched it once every two weeks for a year and a half. I'm making Prince John. Does that make sense financially if you're making out a spreadsheet? The risk-reward isn't there. The risk reward is you make Mickey Mouse, you make Minnie Mouse, you make, you know, whoever. The fact is that we're going in there and we're saying, no, I don't care about all that. I'm making all these weird moments. But the reality is in the collector space, because everyone is driven by their probability sheets and their Excel spreadsheets, we're actually entering into a completely empty space because no one's ever made it. And that movie came out in the 70s and no one's ever made a Prince John figure ever. In a weird way, it's actually what works the best for us is because we go into all these licensed spaces that no one's ever touched in 40, 50 years, which is mind-bogglingly stupid in my mind. But it's like because people are focused on what's the highest probability of success. They're designing for beige, is why I always say. It's like why computers were beige. They're not black. They're not white. They're not a color. It's the most unoffensive thing that we could think of and it's the most boring thing. There's a million people making Mickey and Minnie. No one's making Prince John or the Gator from Fantasia or, you know, Baloo or something.
0: Like, let's go make that. What do I like in Disney? Let's go make that shit. What have you learned about yourself? And it could be personally or professionally that you wouldn't have learned if you hadn't started the Super 7?
1: I think the interesting thing has been as we've continued to grow, there have been multiple times where I have looked to... Other people for business advice, business acumen, or hired people that came from the world of business that clearly understand how business works. I find that the, the whole concept of how business is structured to be a complete farce mm-hmm. and to be completely counterintuitive to what anybody knows as how to run a functional business. The idea is you shouldn't use your own money to pay for expenses you should instead borrow money on credit to build larger credit and use their money and pay three or 4% instead of using cash reserves. For me, I don't know about you, but it's like, I don't wanna owe anybody anything. I'm only gonna grow as fast as I can pay. Mm-hmm. That, that, that makes sense, like going to borrow a whole bunch of money to grow faster is counterintuitive to me because if you fall down a step, then you're screwed, the whole thing collapses. Even if it means I do everything perfect and if you're working on 50% margins, I can only grow my business 2x over a year. That is the maximum I can do if I did everything perfect. You know, everybody else is like, oh, no, but that's not the way business works. When you go talk to a bank about if you want just even a line of credit, they can only look at your business historically, not going forward. So it's like you can have orders and projections going forward, but they can't count that. They can only count what you did last year. So it's like... The bank isn't set up to do that. And then everybody else is just like, well, this is how you have to do it for this. This is how you have to write this. This is the way you have to work for these people. It's like every one of those decisions and every one of those people that went to business school or had business experience, I've found to be the people that have given me the worst advice and the worst decisions about running my brand. Every time we sit here and you know have a meeting with somebody and they're like, well, why aren't you set up like this or this or this? We say... Well, because I don't have any debt and I don't owe anybody this and I don't have to have a financial partner. And then they're like, oh, wow. Well, nobody does it that way. But that's what allows us to retain control. Because if all of a sudden I did have all those other things, then I would be having to have somebody go, you know, you kind of need to make Mickey. And yes, I'll get to Mickey at some point, but I'm going to get to Mickey in my way. I mean, just using Disney as an example, but all of it comes back down to just really understanding that. I sure know a hell of a lot more about running a business than most people that I know that are in business because most of those people are using somebody else's money and it's not their ass on the line where anybody that's ran a punk label or whatever, or done their own shows and everything, you know how to make sure every penny's going to line up to make it work because that's the way, that's the formula. That's a far more sound business than how most people run businesses.
0: Totally. I couldn't agree more.
1: It it boggles my mind every time where it's like people with high-powered degrees. And then after about three months, I'm like, everything you're saying just sounds like it's coming out of a formula. And then quite honestly, that formula is to benefit people that have money, to give you money, to loan you money. It's not about your business. It's about them having control over your business in some capacity or benefiting from the success of your business in some capacity. That's been the surprising part where I'm like, I knew I wasn't dumb. I think I'm maybe smarter than I thought I was in some ways. That sounds really smug and awful. So um, I apologize for sounding like a douche. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right, man. Uh, Well, One of the things that, so like my job, I'm a coach and I work with different leaders across industries. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is there's only the illusion of structure. Like there's nothing on the planet that's permanent. You know, if you see a wall, you can build a wall super thick. You can build it super high. That wall is not going to exist at some point. Businesses aren't going to exist at some point everything is impermanent but it's the illusion of permanence and it's the illusion of a plan it's the illusion of a structure that I believe keeps business like in such a like weird sanitized way Where just like crappy scenarios keep playing themselves out over and over again and one of the things I encourage people to think about a lot is like if there's some big system that seems like like there's a plan like oh there's this plan they've got this grand plan. Really the way to think about it, it's more like there's a curtain and behind the curtain, there's just someone like turning a crank behind it. That's it. The complexity and the solid ideas that people try and predicate a lot of business on typically to me is just like, I don't know, that's like a bunch of theory that it's based on a a bunch of people that are playing into a system that everybody knows is gamed. And if you got the courage, but also the ability to break away, and I want to bring in a punk reference here. If you've got the courage and the ability to break away, that's what you do. So let me bring you the punk reference. You were already a successful designer when you started this and you didn't start it to start a business. You kind of got pulled along. The reference I give is the, like a Fugazi reference. And when Ian MacKay started, you know, Teen Idols and then Minor Threat, he wasn't doing it to create like a cultural, a band that would be culturally iconic that would like change the game. But when Fugazi comes along, Fugazi could have $5 shows. Fugazi could choose not to sell merchandise. They could do that because of where they came from. And I think those things are like, super relevant and like I love the commentary on like the consumer culture and all of those things really powerful but they wouldn't be able to do that unless they had done the things that made them successful in the early days especially there's no there's no doing that without minor threat and there's no doing that without discord
1: I think it's easier to do it with the history of minor threat and discord like we all bought and listened to a Fugazi record because it was Ian from minor threat and embrace and mm-hmm. egg hunt And pale head and that's not to say that it couldn't have been done without it. It's just, that was one of the things with Fugazi. Like if you go to a club uh, venue of this size, then the venue gets a cut of your merch sales. Well, why? And they were just like, then I'm not going to play that club or you don't do it. And they could say no, where so many other people are like, but that's the way the system is set up. It's harder to make your own system, but it's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination and i think that's what everybody gets tripped up in it's like well that's the way it's done or that's the way this is done it's like who cares who cares it's the business example you were bringing up the one that i always bring up that i get hit all the time they're like oh if you make this cheaper we're going to sell so many more i'm like i'm not selling steel and rice there is not yeah i'm blanking on the term but like there's not an inverse relationship to price and demand with what I'm doing, I'm talking to the same 250 guys, whether it's this price or a different price. So let's make the thing we want and price it how it needs to be priced to make it successful. If I lower the price, I'm not magically gonna find 500 other people that wanna buy it. That's not how this works. Yet everyone seems to believe that there's a relationship between price and demand, and there isn't. There isn't, unless you're dealing with a commodity i'm not selling pork bellies or steel futures like that doesn't exist for 99 of the people yet every person you've ever met will tell you that that's a tenet of business
0: dude that's exactly it and this is why i brought up the fugazi reference because on the surface you can have the like well you know like of course they could do that because they had this well it's like well no they actually could have done that the whole time had there been no fugazi had there been no Discord records, had there been no Embrace or any of the bands, had there been no Rights of Spring, had none of that happened, they could still do what they're doing. They just wouldn't have had the same platform right off the hop. And maybe they would have built it up or they wouldn't have.
1: It would have been harder for them to do, but they could have done it. Yeah, you have to stick your heels in and do it. And it's like, okay, well then I'll play this place across the street. Well, it's easier to go to this place. We have a relationship with them and it's controlled by Live Nation or whoever. And then they can book all 40 dates for us and it's all taken care of. It's because somebody else made their life easy rather than Ian calling the record store in Dallas that he trusted that bought records from him and says, where should I
0: play? And that for me is the power of the story of Fugazi. And like, I love talking about Fugazi because it's like a genuine story of like, these are people who are just principled people, super creative. And that was what is at the forefront and all of the business stuff fell to the background. And they could have had a million people being like, Oh, you should do this or that. Or if you know, if you want to make it big. And they were just like, I just don't care. And the reason I bring it into this conversation is how resolute you are about super seven. And, but also like when you're saying like, Hey, these aren't like pork bellies, like th- this isn't that, this isn't a commodity because the missing piece here is like the culture and the creativity and the the principles and like people really feeling like they're part of a community. That idea of a community and being a good community member while also being a person who has a business in that community, that to me is like central to what matters to me in business. And it's so present in how you run Super 7.
1: I think the other thing too, it it is, it's very much like the person buying something from me, like they're giving me part of their money. So therefore I better make sure the thing I'm giving them is great. Secondarily, back to where you were going with Fugazi though, when you say like, oh, they could have been big, like they were big. They mm-hmm. The question is, are you okay with how big you are? Like, when is it okay? Like I was okay with Super 7 when it was five people. I don't need to be a hundred people or a hundred million dollars. If that ends up happening, so be it. You know, if this falls apart tomorrow and we go back to being six dudes in a room just making some toys for fun i will be completely content and look at what we did when is it okay when is enough enough and that's what so many people in business are like they keep always wanting to make it bigger it's got to get bigger it's got to keep growing and you'll even hear people say if you're not growing you're dying and i'm like bullshit it's all bullshit Goes back to the same thing like when people talk about the stock market. If you have a company that makes $100 million a year, it makes $10 million a year in profit and gives out $10 million a year in dividends. Every year that company is worth less because it's not growing. On my side, I'd be like, holy shit, this is the best place to put your money because you would get continued returns and it's stable. It makes sense. Instead, they want a company that's growing to $200 million losing $20 million a year with the hope that one day it might get 500 million. It's all a gamble. And none of it is tied to the actual reality of running a business. The actual reality of making sure that when it's said and done, you get paid, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's fine. Be small. Don't be big. Like we're getting bigger, but it's, we're getting bigger by customers demand of our product not because I'm shoving more product at my customer, trying to yeah. feed them.
0: Totally, man, 100%. Tell me about the uh, the crossroads of punk culture, skate culture, and Super 7.
1: It's all the same thing uh, to me. The funniest quote of it all is my friend, Chris Janicek, who I've known since I was 15. When he came into the store, it's gotta be like a decade ago, he was just like, oh, this is your bedroom at 16 made into a store. <laughs> <laughs> that that was and i was just like that is the most accurate distillation of everything there and that's exactly what it is it's it's mm-hmm. just here are all the things we grew up with and we loved i still love them as an adult but nobody's taking them and representing them to me as a way that makes sense to me now as somebody that's about to turn 50 or as somebody that's 40 or, or 35 I make the analogy with apparel all the time. It's like, yeah, when I was seven years old, I had a t-shirt that had a picture of Darth Vader that you know covered the whole front of it, and it was awesome. I can't wear that t-shirt now. But there's a different thing that I could be wearing, but no one's making it. So I'm going to go make it. But So going back to the intersection of punk and skateboarding and everything, it's just, I, I hate to sound like we're running, you're beating on a dead horse, just like, For the people that were interested in those subcultures, you had to go out, you had to search it, you had to be invested. But at least my experience with it is, is that I couldn't play music. So I was doing flyers. I was laying out album covers. I was helping pack seven inches. I was doing, helping with the shows or whatever. I was doing all the other stuff. All that stuff proved to you or me at 15 and 16 and 17 that, if you want something to happen, all you have to do is just start putting your effort against it and it will happen. It's a magical awakening that you can affect change. And it's a, it's a very weird segue living in San Francisco because it's very different than where I grew up in Texas. Graffiti in a lot of ways to me, I think speaks to kids the exact same way. You go from being a kid, you're 15, 14, whatever. You don't have a voice. You don't have an identity. You don't know who you are. But the moment you can start writing your name, just tagging on a door or a can, all of a sudden you start to see it. Other people know who you are. It becomes like I'm creating this thing. So going back to the punk and skate thing, you wanted to go skate someplace. You needed to go build a ramp like you created your own future. You wanted a show to come to town. Well, you better figure out how to do it. You know, you wanted your friend's band to play and it wasn't, once you got down to it, it's not really that hard. You just have to be okay with five people telling you no before the sixth person tells you yes. And so many people get to one no and stop. I, I harp on this with everybody that we work with, which is just like, you have to be ready and okay with the fact that it's probably not going to work the first time we try this. But If I fail on it, I'll learn 20%. Then I try it again, and I learn another 20%. Now I'm at 40%. Then I try it a third time, and now I'm at 60%, 75%. And now it's starting to work. By the time I try it the fourth or fifth time, I can do it. And so many people try everything one time and never come back because it didn't work. And it's like, fuck, of course it didn't work. The first time I tried to bake something in the oven, it came out awful. It didn't mean I never tried it
0: again. Yeah, but some people are more comfortable with with failure. And actually, like, have you gotten more comfortable with failure as you've gone along? Or have you always been pretty comfortable with it?
1: It's never bothered me. What I've noticed that more people are concerned with is how other people view it. They're not concerned about failing themselves. They're they're convinced that their friends are going to be like, oh, well, fuck that up. Or, you know, Super 7 is a perfect example. Like, I... Don't know how to make... I never knew how to make toys. I don't know anything about making toys back then. I didn't. I just wanted to start making some, so I started doing it. You know, there's some toys that we made that didn't come out how we intended. But it's like, we just started doing it. And then one day, we'd made a dozen of them. And all of a sudden, to half the people I knew, I was the toy guy. We're talking about this because you know Super 7. I did LeBron James' logo for Nike when he came in to the NBA. Nobody knows me as the guy that does that stuff anymore. I'm the toy guy. You do a thing and that's what you are. You know, you don't have to become a punk rocker or a skateboarder, you just start skating and you're a skateboarder. You start going to shows, you start talking to people, now you're a punk rocker. There's no like diploma or graduating thing, you just start doing it and next thing you know, you're it.
0: Yeah, totally man.
1: I always find that people are very concerned that other people are gonna view them as a failure and they're not as concerned about failing but they're concerned about how other people view them
0: yeah i 100 percent agree and also i'll say as a, a guy myself who you know i've taken a lot of risks in my life and i have no problem creating i have no problem failing but growing up you know i grew up in a way where i didn't have a lot of um strong family connections so being like within group and having strong connections to people probably was more important to me than other people so like i have a lot of empathy for people who are really afraid to look bad in front of people or they really want approval. Cause I know how hard that can be. And a lot of people in the punk scene and the creative scene can find themselves there. I've never been afraid to fail because I've always wanted to be like really great at whatever I was doing. I completely agree with you that a lot of people, it's not the failure they fear, it's the perceived like I'm gonna look bad. And I don't wanna look bad cause that means I won't be within group. I know that's hard for people, but the only way to get past stuff like that is just, you've got to define yourself for yourself through that process of like growth and stumbling and trying. I don't mean like toughen up. I mean, like you fail enough until you succeed. And when in that success, you find yourself.
1: Yeah. When you bring up tough enough, I always, I, and this is a thing that I'm going through with one of my children right now, where they're very nervous every time we go outside, they don't want me to raise my voice. They don't want me to draw attention to them. But I'm like, the reality is like what people perceive that other people will think of them as failure is no different than walking down the street or like somebody's at a restaurant by themselves and they're like, oh my God, everybody's looking at me eating all by myself. And it's like, no, when you go to a restaurant and you're talking to a friend, you have no idea what's going on in the rest of the restaurant. You didn't even know anybody was there. No. No. You're walking down the street and other people are talking and yelling at each other. You don't even notice them. Yet people inside are always convinced that other people are somehow having this narrative about them. It's like, you gotta kind of realize that no one cares. And not in a negative way, but no one's paying attention. Even if you walk up and you stumble on the curb and fall flat on your face, there's about five people that will look at you. One person will most likely go, are you okay and help you up? Everybody else will have forgotten about it 20 seconds later. All that embarrassment or whatever, is gone the only person that retains that is yourself no one else bothered
0: and then the story you tell yourself about how other people perceived it is what makes it even worse when you beat yourself up
1: you're convinced that you embarrassed yourself in front of them they all laughed at you and thought it was a big joke and it's like everybody else what just happened was immaterial to their life they digested it and threw it away and forgot about it. they had no idea it happened yet you're metastasizing this thing into something bigger. Now we're on
0: track of some sort of like psychology on how people function (laughs) and- All right, I got two more questions for you as we're wrapping it up. The first is, for you, is there any kind of different payoff, and I don't mean financially, I just mean from satisfaction, from doing a toy that's really, really simple versus doing something like the uh, Thundercats tank that you just did. Is there any different kind of payoff for you or is it that same kind of like feel good moment from it?
1: I think it's the same. Making the thing real is what's interesting to me. Quite honestly, once we're finished with it, I'm usually kind of, I don't want to say over it, I'm like psyched and I put it away. But the process is the most interesting part. When we get the very first test shots, that's when I'm the most excited because it's like, oh my God, this thing we imagined is now physically tangible. That's the most exciting part. The process is what's interesting. And and that's that's an easy thing to say for people that are always like oh the process is always the most exciting part and it's like <laughs> it's some like oh the art genius that has to talk about it it's like no it's like the making and being involved in that part once it's done yeah you're, you're like oh I did it getting back in and getting your hands dirty again is the exciting part
0: yeah all right actually I have two more questions from here
1: you can that- have twenty I'm, I got no place to be
0: all right in what you do very specifically, there's like a big secondary market. And it's the same with like punk records and, and all that. You put something out, you sell it at the price and you know, it's going to get sold by maybe someone who loves it, but maybe they sell it so they can get something else or they love it and they fall in hard times and they have to you know liquidate their collection to pay for things. And there's also people who buy things to flip things. I'd say at this point in my life, it's like kind of all fair game for me. Cause as you know, I buy records that are Way inflated past what they're originally sold for. It's all part of the game. But do you have any thoughts on that, on that, that, mar- that, like, kind of resellers market and how you feel about it in regards to Super 7?
1: Yeah. I mean, we've done a pretty good job and are continuing to try to do a pretty good job of limiting the crass side of that. For a lot of companies, especially as you get hot, think of a Supreme. If they're going to drop 500 sneakers and the 500 people in line are all flippers. There's a huge spike in the secondary market, but generally, in most cases that are not supreme, six months later, that thing's not even worth retail now. Mm -hmm. Like it comes and it goes and the moment's over. So what we did was we took a lot of our more collectible oriented product and we turned it all into pre-orders where it was like, hey, there's a month. You have a whole month. Anybody that wants it can order it. You can buy. It's what Discord's doing with the box set right now.
0: Mm Yeah, I love that they're doing because
1: the green can I say sold out in like two hours and I had to buy it on eBay. So um, (laughs) which we're not going to talk about right now. (laughs) You know, we make it so that everybody that wants one can get one. You had plenty of time. But it also then puts a really great guardrail on the fact that you don't have extra inventory that you paid for that may not have a home. And what invariably happens is between the time that we do the pre-order and the time the product actually delivers, you've got a whole group of people that didn't see it somehow, saw their friends once they got it and are now interested, or any number of other reasons that then does cause some secondary market to move. But it isn't that super dramatic immediate spike upon that. You know, when we talk about community again, For us, with the collectors, like I'm not trying to make it hard to buy my toys. So I want to give everyone the chance to buy my toy. At the same time, if you're talking about an Ultimate that's $55 retail, I also owe it to those people to make sure that that $55 toy is always worth $55. Maybe more, but it's not worth $35 or $30, which happens to lots and lots of other companies because they overproduce. So the other thing is making sure that you don't make too many. Say I was going to make a thousand of something. There was a thousand people that wanted it. If I make a thousand and fifty, it doesn't matter what the price is. There's not 50 more people to buy it. And if all of a sudden that product is worth less than you paid for it, then why would you buy toys for me instead of waiting six months for it to go on sale? We've really tried to find that fine line between making enough so that everybody has a chance to get one, but not so many that it destroys the secondary market, and also not so few that it becomes too expensive and difficult to collect what I make. Because I'm, I'm talking to mostly collectors, so I don't want you to have to pay 4X retail on the secondary market for everything I make. After a few months, you're just gonna get pissed and give up. That's not the experience I wanna have. I want you to have the thing. That's why I love making it. It's like records. You want people to have the record. You know, how do you gauge how many you need and how many you don't? It's a fine line, but that's the way the pre order really helps because you can maximize the number of genuine people with minimizing the amount of overstock.
0: Yeah. Hell yeah. All right. Last question for you. I know you're a big uh, skate deck collector. Uh, Terrifying. Okay. Now, I know this could change at any given time, or maybe not. Maybe you have a solid pick here, but I'm not saying all time greatest. I'm saying right now. What are your three skate decks that you are loving the most? And they could be ones you already have or the ones that you're still hunting. But what are your top three right now?
1: Top three are very easy. It's the Old Ghost Guardian by John Grigley, the Steve Stedham Spade and Skull uh, that was on Powell, and the Tom Grahalski Heavy Metal by Vision. Hell yeah. And all of those are for, you know, the Old Ghost was the first skateboard I ever rode. And then I... Bought it used, so it's the first skateboard I ever owned. But the art on it is for me growing up like when I draw, I, I'm trying to be very precise. And that board, the graphics are as imprecise as possible. It's very improvised, sort of random, and with a stencil, how he put it together. So as a kid, I would stare at it. It worked so well. And yet I couldn't understand the pathway of how he got there. I would trace puss graphics and copy them like crazy. It was very linear. I understood how you did it. Here's the drawing. Here's how you hatch it. The organicness that happened in that board, even to this day, but like melted my brain as a kid. Like How, did, how can you leave that amount up to chance and whimsy, yet it all somehow magically work and boggled my mind. The Stedham was the board I always wanted after I got the old Ghost. I was, it was going to be the first new skateboard I was going to buy. And we didn't have a ton of money. We were fine. So the deal that my dad always made for us was at Christmas, if you want an expensive present, I can pay for half of it, but you've got to save up the other half. I saved up my money you know, mowing lawns or whatever for several months. So I had enough money to buy my first new skateboard. We went to the skate shop, which was Zulu's in San Antonio, Texas, which was maybe 10 by 10, maybe 30 boards in the store, maybe, maybe 20. And they didn't have it because it was road pro for Powell for a year and quit in the middle of 86. So it was gone. I couldn't buy it. So I never could own that board. I always wanted it and I never could own one. And I never even saw one in person until the summer of 1990. I was at a kid's backyard ramp in Florida. We were cooling off in the garage because it was like, you know, 739 degrees with 400% humidity and uh, at two in the afternoon. And I look over and there's this brand new unskated fluorescent orange stedum. And I was like, what the hell is that? He was like, Oh, it's my brother's old board. And at that point that, that was a legitimate antique. And I was like, "I will give you twenty bucks for that board right now." And the kid couldn't give it to me fast enough. And I hung that board on my wall in 1990, and I still have it. Wow! And then the the heavy metal is the board that I actually bought because they didn't have any stedams, so I bought the heavy metal.
0: I mean, I love it. And I could talk to you forever, but I, I definitely want to respect your time. So. As we're closing off, any last words from you? Anything you want to leave our audience with? And keep in mind, our audience is like a mix of like punk people, like people like artists, but also just a lot of pure business people. So any any last thoughts? Between this,
1: between the design studio and everything over the years, at least for me, I know that when we touched on it earlier, I've always known what I want, but I'm always prone to second guessing a little bit. Like maybe I should get somebody with a little bit more experience or maybe I should go get somebody that knows more about this than I do. I know what I want to do, but I'm always a little hesitant of like, can it be done or am I doing it the right way? And what I've really come back to with both businesses over the years is, you know what you need to do. There's just this thing that tells you maybe that maybe there's something you don't know out there. And the reality is sometimes there is, but it's not so significant that it's going to slow you down It just means when you do learn it, you can just go, oh, I need to, you know, bolt that onto the side and we can keep going. Just go do whatever you're going to go do. Don't wait. Don't overthink it. Just start, you know, the do it yourself mantra, the start today thing, everything else. It's just, just start doing it. No one ever does it perfectly. If you know what you want, you know better than so many other people what you're supposed to be doing. If you're doing it, it'll work itself out, you know? it's nowhere near as complicated as it seems. And the more and more as we get bigger and I have to deal with all the financial implications that come with that on how the business is structured and what we're doing, the more I talk to more and more people higher and higher that deal with all this other shit, I realize that we're set up so much better than every other client they have. And it's crazy because it's not hard. It's not Difficult. It's simple math that you're doing when you're three people is the same basic principle when you're 50 people, except on steroids. Everybody else tries to find the better way to do it. And it's like there's not a better way. That's the way. It's still the same math. If you try to cut any of those other corners, somebody else is gonna own you in some way, shape, or form.
0: That's super powerful. All right, man. Thank you so much. Dude, just I really appreciate you giving us your time. I hope it was worth it for somebody. Oh, man, it was awesome. All right, everyone, we'll see you in the outro. And Spencer, drop the beat. I got a lot out of that conversation. Super 7 is just cool. And the stuff that Brian was talking about, A, it's relatable for anyone. But being a small business owner myself and really having created a business that's a non-traditional approach to a traditional business. I took so much solace out of, uh, out of hearing his story and, and his insights. Now at the end of the day, yes, people can tell you all sorts of things about what you should do or what you could have done or what you should do in the future, but why do they know any better than you? Yes, you should take advice as needed. And yes, you should seek outside opinion. But it doesn't mean you have to go to these traditional sources for it. You could ask all sorts of people. You could read a book. You could figure it out yourself. There is no better insight than the insight that you have from figuring it out through trial and error. That's my deep belief. If you're out there and people are telling you like, no, you got to be an expert to do this or you need to be get guided from someone else, whatever, you can do this. Take the leap. As we're closing off, I want to remind everyone that we're produced and edited by Spencer Priest, recorded by Patrick McKechnie, and our design is done by Tammy Levy. So with that, I will see you all next time on One Step Beyond. One Step! One Step!